superheroes, women in church, and the science of intersex. All that and more on this episode of Ask Science Mike. You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You got problems, he won't solve them. But I'm talking, talking, talking till he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to another episode of Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And it's kind of an old school episode. I actually picked the questions for this week's show. I've got a lot going on. Didn't really have time to get questions out on Patreon, but we'll uh, return to that schedule in a few weeks. But we're doing it old school today. Uh, What the heck? Let's get it started. science mike my name is Paige. i really love listening to your show uh, my question relates to the idea of superpowers in our society the idea of superhuman abilities is really prevalent um, on television and novels and movies and comics we've created these ideas of people who have supernatural powers like in the justice league or x-men who can do things that are amazing we've dreamt of people who can read minds who can heal who can change into animals who can fly I feel our culture is obsessed with the idea of superpowers and of humans doing things that physically are not possible for us to do. I guess my question is, why do we extremely desire something that our physical world isn't equipped with to give us? It just seems kind of fruitless that despite having all we need, there's obviously still this lack of contentment with the way our world is set up. For me, ever since I was little, I've really wanted to fly, and at times I almost feel like ordinary life isn't enough. So I wonder if there's a reason that we desire these powers. Is there some evolutionary advantage for always desiring greater things? Does it help us to advance as a species when we're always looking for the next great thing? Or is it something more spiritual? I read a C.S. Lewis quote once that says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So could it be that there is an afterlife where we can do these things? Or do you think that it will one day be possible for us on Earth to do some of the things we imagine today? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and I really appreciate all that you do. The show means so much to me. So thank you for all your great work. Well, Paige, what a wonderful and interesting question. And I'd actually like to take a moment to digress from it, because you did something that a lot of people do, is that you told me you like listening to the show, and you thanked me for doing the show. So I'd like to thank you for asking your question. Um, the hardest thing for me about podcasting or writing or, or creating things is trying to figure out what to create, what to talk about, what people want to know. And what's so great about this show is you guys just tell me what you want to talk about, and it takes all the work away from me. So, Paige, I really need you to know I literally couldn't do this show without you and without people like you. And that not only did I listen to your question, but I listen to every single question that people record and send in. And I read every single question that people send in. Now, right now we get a lot more questions than we could ever put on the show, but I read them all and it's fascinating and actually helps shape the things I research and look into and you know, you're going to see your ideas reflected in my work. So I want to thank you for that. It means a lot to me. Uh, Now let's talk about superheroes. Why do we want to be superheroes? I do. I've wanted to fly 
my whole life, since I was a little kid, all the way to now, if I could fly, I would, I'd be in. I'd love to be able to turn invisible. I've always thought it would be amazing to turn invisible and play pranks on people because I'm basically a giant middle schooler, and that might even be offensive to middle schoolers. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I, I feel like I identify with being a giant middle schooler, so I'm just going to hang with that. Um, super speed. Super speed would be a lot of fun. I'd love to be as strong as Superman and then enter arm wrestling competitions and uh, just put up a good fight and, and you know, not break the guy's arm off or whatever. You know, I get it's funny. All my superhero powers other than flying tend to relate to playing jokes on people. I wonder what that says about me. But we all, I think, have these fantasies, these dreams of, as you said, having abilities beyond our physical limitations and you asked me if there are evolutionary advantages to those fantasies. And I'd say absolutely. You know, as I researched this one, the most common theme I found from sociologists and psychologists is that modern superhero narratives and movies and media are like justice porn. It's a way for us to project a need for certainty onto a chaotic world. And uh, as evidence, uh, I found several articles that pointed to the heightened popularity of superhero narratives post 9-11. There could be merit to that. I didn't dig deep enough to find out. But I don't need to because I've done enough research already to know that there's absolutely an evolutionary advantage to these kind of fantasies. Because you can imagine a couple hundred thousand years ago, someone who looked a lot like you but didn't live in a civilization, lived in a tribal setting, who had adapted to include more animal protein in their diet, looked at animals that were faster and hard to catch, and imagined if only we could strike animals down from a distance. One day, wielded a branch and realized you could club things. And then someone else said, well, if only we could make really long clubs. Uh, and then we learned to throw and... You know, human beings are absolute freaks of nature in our capacity to accurately throw things. There's no animal on the planet that can execute a throw like we can, which is why when we figured out how to sharpen sticks and throw them as spears, we became the deadliest animal on the planet. Suddenly, the largest of prey could be felled by a band of humans, and the most powerful apex predators were afraid of these apes with pointy sticks. Our ability to dream and imagine a future that doesn't exist is largely responsible for our success over other species. So, imagining the impossible is how we invent and innovate. So, while we may not be able to breathe underwater naturally, we can build scuba gear. While we may not be able to fly we can build hang gliders. It is the combination of our dexterity and our imaginations that makes humanity, humanity. Now, C.S. Lewis is the fact that we can imagine these things a sign of some immaterial realm. Well, I hope not, because we imagine terrible things as well. Uh, we imagine the ability to defeat our adversaries in war, and we split atoms and make tanks and bombs 
whatever the spirit world is, I don't think our fantasies are the best way to understand it. I often lean into my hopes and my dreams of what could be. I often tell people, I hope for God. I hope for reconciliation with Him in the next life. But as I've said so many times in the program, I just don't think we have an empirical way to nail down those sorts of things. All we have is the fact that we have extremely powerful subjective experiences that make us feel like there is more to life than an emergent phenomenon from physics, that there is more to consciousness than neurons. And uh, I hold out hope in those situations. So superheroes, I absolutely think they're born of evolution. And uh, the afterlife, it will be what it will be. And I trust God to take care of that. Hey, Science Mike. This is Bill in Baltimore, Maryland. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, um, well, I guess intersex people uh, and the implication that that has for our overall gender binaries. Uh, And if you want to connect that to how theology works and how Christian theology has uh, developed, especially uh, as it relates to Genesis, uh, that would be awesome. Bill, what a timely question. Yeah, I haven't really weighed in on the Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner situation, um, other than episode 20 of the Liturgist podcast, where we talked about LGBTQ equality and the church. But this is certainly a topic that is timely, a lot of people are discussing and curious about. And I, interestingly enough, I haven't seen intersex persons mentioned as part of that conversation, and they are relevant. But perhaps first we should discuss what intersex is and how it differs from trans persons. So an intersex person, biologically speaking, medically speaking, cannot be clearly defined as a man or a woman. A transgendered person has a gender identity that differs from their physical or given gender, their biological gender. Although, gosh, trans is tough to talk about because all those words, they're, they're loaded and they're, they're imprecise for the discussion. It, it may not be accurate to say that a neurologically an identity gender is non-biological, for example. But just, just forgive me, I'm doing my best with a new topic uh, and that the language hasn't quite landed on. But here's an easy way to simplify intersex versus transsexual or transgendered. Intersexed persons are often given surgery they do not want as children. Transsexual persons or transgendered persons are often denied surgery that they do want. Okay? So an intersex person, for example, may look exactly like a woman, may have breasts, may have a vagina, may have all the exterior features of a woman, but may chromosomally be uh, XY, and instead of ovaries, may have testicles. Okay, that is one example of a possible intersexed person. And there are many, many variations. Effectively, internally or externally, there is some difficulty in deriving where a person is male or female. They may have a clitoris, but no vaginal opening, for example. 
which looks an awful lot like a male with micro penis, although missing testicles. And there, there's a great number of these uh, potential biological options. And here's why. Gender is complicated biologically. Gender binaries don't exist in nature. The whole male-female thing is a social construct. It's sociolinguistic. It's not biological in nature. Effectively, sex, male-female sex, is an adaptation in vertebrates for evolutionary advantages. Uh, we scramble our DNA by having sex. We, we increase our mutation rate, and it helps us compete against microbes because microbe generations are so much faster than ours. It, it's fair to say that a male, a male vertebrate, is a specialized kind of female. And to say that, I would say look at clownfish where a dominant female clownfish becomes male. And that's how clownfish make more clownfish. So it takes an incredibly orchestrated experience between your genes and your development and and especially the release of hormones at particular moments to shape an embryo towards either sex. And then that happens again later with secondary sex characteristics. And so you can have, and I'm not talking about people taking hormones, I'm talking about with no medical intervention, people whose secondary and primary sex characteristics don't, don't match or are mixed or whose genitals contain features of both genders or really not much of either gender. And typically, intersex people have been medically corrected to look more like one gender or the other. And often it turns out in time that the doctor's choice that was recommended to the family that the family went with did not match the person's actual gender identity. So uh, someone was raised as a girl and they figure out they're male. It turns out they had their testicles removed, right? Because they were internal testicles and they looked externally female. Now, I know a lot of people are listening to this and your mind is blown, but here's the thing. This is relatively common. There's many types of intersex conditions. There are a lot of babies born this way, and I'm going to include links in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com so you can check my data yourself. But this was at the heart of what started to change my mind on the issue of marriage equality and sexual orientation because sexual orientation is based on a lattice that assumes two biological genders. And what we find in science, in biology, is gender is actually a spectrum. Now, don't get me wrong. An overwhelming majority of people fall towards one of the far ends of the spectrum. But even among people who are obviously male or obviously female, let's be honest, some of us are more masculine biologically or more feminine biologically. Does that make us less of a man or a woman? And that's the point. The binary fails. So transgendered persons and intersex people in some way cross what we as a society and a culture have decided are lines that are impossible to cross. But we can only do that by ignoring physical evidence. And this has theological implications. 
someone who has an X and a Y chromosome and testicles where ovaries should be, but biologically appears to be female, are they a lesbian if they're attracted to women? What about someone else who was raised as a boy in the same condition, but it turns out has ovaries and no vaginal opening? How do you say whether they are gay or whether they're straight? It's not clear what their gender is to begin with. Intersexed persons are not freaks. They're not broken. They're just people. They were made by the same process that traditionally male and traditionally female people were. The same is true of transgendered persons. We have to accept that if we believe there is a God and that this God is involved in creation, and that this God created us, that this God also created intersexed persons. So when I look at Genesis, where they were created, male and female, I see a reflection of ancient people in the same way that I see a firmament in the heavens or a six-day creation an ancient understanding of science, still poetic, still beautiful, and still having much to teach us, but also unaware of many things we know now. This is why I'm affirming of people who have differing sexual orientations. This is why I'm affirming of transgendered persons, because they want what I want. They want to love someone else to reflect the beauty of creation in a relationship. And I would not deny that of anyone. And I don't believe that God would either. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Mary. I'm so grateful for your program and the topics that you cover. I'm wondering if you can speak to the issue of raising children. Given your own experience as a person of faith um, who deeply appreciates science um, and your own story, I'm wondering if you can suggest to those of us who are raising kids now the sorts of maybe knowledge and skills that you think are worthwhile for us to be passing on to them. It seems like in the areas of education and parenting, um, even Christian education at churches, uh, everything is up in the air. Um, The old ways of doing things, even the former curricula that have been used in schools and Sunday schools um, are being questioned. What do you think is worthwhile um, for children as they're developing to hear about from adults and to see modeled by adults. Um, Thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. Take care. I got two great kids. I mean, they're like my favorite people to be around. I'd take the company of my wife and my daughters over anyone, any day of the week. (laughs) We have such good times together. Uh, We're friends, all of us. We enjoy each other. And that's because, I don't know, kids are a mystery. They come out of the womb, and they're their own person already. And I think one of the mistakes people make, and and there's some science I've read that backs this up, is they try to 
make their child into someone. And we're tour guides, parents, we're just tour guides. <laughs> Modern parenting overcorrects for some problems with parenting in prior generations. So whereas maybe uh, previous generations could have been at times too detached or uh, excessively disciplinarian, we overcompensate by becoming helicopter parents and uh, not disciplining our kids at all. So let's talk about the super loose, roughly science-based, science-mic approach to parenting. And here's the other thing. I only know it works on my kids. My data set is two kids. And I know enough kids to know that absolutely nothing <laughs> works for all children other than this. So I'm going to give you one piece of universal advice. The most important thing for any child is to know that they are loved unconditionally by their parents. Science backs me up 100%. There is not much more damaging neurologically and psychologically to a child than to wonder if their parent loves them or approves of them. Your love and your approval of your children is unconditional. Kick shame to the curb. Shame-based parenting is damaging and ineffective. It is vital to build trust with children. How do you build trust with children? The same way you do with everyone else. You answer questions honestly. Age-appropriate, there's that component too, right? You know, uh, your three-year-old's not going to get a screed on democracy, but you can tell them who the president is, right? That's what I mean by age-appropriate. Apologize when you're wrong to your kids. Science has shown that's that's really, really, really beneficial. And kids are more confident when their parents are willing to admit mistakes. Uh, set boundaries. Boundaries actually are important, but also explain them and be open to questions. Consistency with children is vital. Say what you're going to do and do what you say. That's really incredible. Kids don't deal well with ambiguity. So consistency is vital. That includes in discipline. If I tell my kids, listen, if you don't stop whatever the thing is they shouldn't be doing, I'm going to have consequence X, then I have to follow through which also means to be reasonable in the consequences you dictate. Uh, I haven't spanked my kids in years, and in the very beginning, I, I wish I wouldn't have done the very little that I did. Um, but still, the consistency in discipline is vital. And so when I, when I say discipline, I mean a, a teachable corrective moment, not you know a belt uh, or, or a spanking or whatever. I want to be clear about that. Reading. I think is vital. You want to teach kids to teach themselves. So you want your kids to catch you reading and you want to read together as a family. I've got two avid readers. I think that helps children develop into their own human. What fascinates me is to see how my children's taste in reading differ from each other and different from me and my wife. We, we spend more time uh, reading than watching television in our home. A lot more. Um, but whatever you do in approaching parenting and whatever we teach our kids, I think with young children, you want to model your faith if faith is important to you uh, with not much ambiguity. But as they grow, it's OK to talk about what you believe and what others believe and why we believe this. Um, I think it's important to set kids up for a world 
that is multicultural and multiracial and the fabric they're actually going to weave their tapestry onto in life. Okay. I think that's vital. But whatever you do, give yourself grace. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. People freak out way too much about being the best possible parent. Just love your kids and do your best. When you mess up, admit it. All the stress goes away. (laughs) Take care of yourself. Get rest. Uh, If you're married or in a relationship, then invest as much energy in that as you do in the kids. When they're little, I get it. If you don't take care of them, they die. But as kids get older, they get more independent, and that balance of energy needs to go right back into taking care of yourself and investing in your relationship with your partner. And that will make your children happier. I think we overcomplicate it. I think some of the best parenting I see anthropologically happens in more primitive societies where children are just part of life. They're not uh, doted over or obsessed about. Uh, They're free to explore and grow. Really interesting from a science perspective is the degree to which very safe playgrounds haven't actually uh, reduced playground injuries. We've created a generation of kids that don't know how to fall and don't know how to explore. And that, you know, a lot of the paranoia we have about child safety and children being unwatched, you know, going around neighborhoods on bicycles and stuff, uh, you know, their kidnapping is just not a statistically significant event. It's, it's much ado about nothing. So as your kids grow, give them freedom trust them and build mutual trust and create opportunities for open discussion. My kids can ask me anything, anytime, and they're going to get an honest answer. Anything, anytime, and they will get an honest answer. And they never get shamed or rebuked for a question. And in this age, that's vital. When my kids run across something online that confuses them, I want them to come ask me about it. <laughs> I don't want to, uh, what are you looking at? What do you, no, let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. Let's not use shame in parenting. And that's it. I think model being a healthy, balanced person and your children will do the same. You know, find the th- things in life that light you up and pursue them. Uh, oh, one other thing, uh, and this is this is also backed by data, The more time you can sit around tables sharing meals together, uh, the healthier your relationship with your children will be, the more successful they will be, and actually, the greater uh, the chance that you will have uh, success in your marriage as well, or your your major relationship, that matters as well. A little rambly there, sorry about that, no notes on this episode, I'm just going with every uh, answer as I think about it, but that's, that's how I approach parenting. I tell you what, I'm going to ask you listeners, you've got kids, what do you know about it? Come to AskScienceMike.com, episode 21, uh, drop some comments for this question. I Heck, I always like to learn more about parenting. It is the most difficult, most rewarding thing I know that a couple can do. 
Hey, Science Mike. My name is Kat. Uh, I actually just listened to your most recent podcast, and my husband, Zach, had sent in a question unbeknownst to me, and I'm I'm really glad that he did. Um, so just a, a quick recap he and I experienced. Um, uh, we came up through the high school ministry of our church we'd been at for, you know, 13 years and continued to serve, and um, they're just, uh, there was definitely um, some issues there at the end uh, with manipulation and, and leaders having too much um, power and authority that went unchecked and, uh, and unfortunately we, um, got hurt in the process and, uh, are kind of rebuilding from the ground up what we believe and what we were, um, you know, taught and, you know, was that taught by somebody who was in a good place at the time and, um, and worth listening to, or do we need to start over? And, um, anyway, so something that, has constantly been coming up for me is uh, women's role in the church and in leadership. And I'm just curious if, uh, if science supports, um, the traditional role of women that we've been taught kind of the more meek and better suited for support, support roles and, you know, motherhood and, and things like that versus, um, uh, roles, you know, higher up roles uh, in the church. And I just loved your response of, you know, the, the way to, to kind of get around the patriarchal, system of, you know, of the current church is just to go to a church with that's led by a female pastor. And I had to pull over. <laughs> I just laughed so hard. So, uh, so thanks for that. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I'm just curious if, uh, if science supports, um, that, uh, you know, that, that idea of, of women kind of taking more of a support role and, um, and then also, you know, what, where you see scripture playing into that as well. I mean, that's, it's obviously a huge thing that's debated in the church is, you know, where, where is a woman's place and should they have a defined place? And I just, I can't get past that, you know, when, uh, when Christ died and when he, you know, when he came back and it was, it was women, it was women that found him and that ushered the gospel into the world to, you know, they were the first ones to tell everybody and, and started this amazing, this amazing adventure of the gospel that that we all you know ascribe to now so um so i just can't get past that like what a, and what an amazing responsibility and that he would ask women to do that and it's such uh it's such a beautiful beautiful thing and uh and i love women in leadership and i'm you know i'm just i'm not satisfied with uh with the current um description of women's role in uh, in the church so yeah so just curious what your thoughts are and thanks so much i i really appreciate um what you do and uh it's just brought a lot of a lot of healing for for my family so thanks so much. Bye-bye. Well, Kat, I'm glad you uh, sent a message in. I'm glad we had a follow-up after what Zach sent in. And I hope you guys are finding more supportive community. I had a question a few episodes back, and I'll link in the notes on AskScienceMike.com to it. Someone asked me the science about the differences between men and women. And uh, and that kind of got into a discussion of complementarianism, this worldview that because of the way the scriptures are written— Men and women have different roles. It is a theological position, but as I mentioned in that episode, it is not a scientific one. It's just, it's not there. Now, studies of men and women are hard to do because how do you separate culture? You can do cross cultural studies and that's helpful, but a lot, you know, for example, if you were to study scientifically our women as effective leaders, you would have to acknowledge in that study that there's tremendous social pressure on women as they develop, as they grow against becoming leaders. Or, for example, why are there so many male uh, people in science, technology, engineering, and math? Well, because young girls who are good at math are only encouraged to be good at math to a point at which point 
they're suddenly discouraged from pursuing those skills by social pressure and even by their teachers. That said, it's just not there. There's no science to say that women can't do anything that men can. There's a few things men can do that women can't. Men can what? They can ejaculate and produce sperm. That's a, that's a man-only gig. Growing a full beard is going to be much easier for a man. Growing taller than six feet, statistically much more likely for a man to be able to do it. And in general, men are going to have an advantage at building muscle mass at a given size biologically, so they're going to be a little bit stronger. Neurologically speaking, uh, men are a little bit better as a group at 3D spatial perception. That's pretty much it. (laughs) None of those things are especially relevant to modern society either. Women can do everything men can do. I love having two daughters and going to a church with a pastor named Betsy and an associate pastor named Sterling, which by the way, both of them are two of the best preachers that I've ever heard in my life. Sterling can bring the fire <laughs> like any male pastor I've ever heard. And uh, Betsy's messages are both thoughtful and empathetic and moving every single week. I go to a church where there's not only a female pastor, but there's women all over in leadership. But what I like about my church is it's uh it's not some order of the priestess. It's not a place where men are minimized. It's a place where men and women are equal partners in ministry and in life. It's egalitarian. And I think that's the healthiest way for a church to be. So, no, I don't think science supports traditional gender roles. Now, scripture. I think some scripture, some of the authors of scripture would be against uh, women in church leadership, I think. Others would be more for it. Scripture did not have a single author. People wrote the Bible. Now, there are some people who say that God inspired directly all of those people, and uh, that's a very common belief in the church. It is one that I don't hold. I'm not a biblical inerrantist. I read the Bible as the accounts of people who love and serve God, but they are human accounts, which offers me, frankly, tremendous freedom on issues like women leading in the church, or marriage equality, or the age of the universe and Darwinian evolution, uh, because I'm not trying to force everything through, you know, a 2,000 to 5,000 year old worldview. Now, when I listen to your answer and you say you're not satisfied with the way things are, and you do point accurately to the fact that the first people to witness the resurrection were women, (laughs) you've got to do something about that feeling. You've got to ask yourself, are you a reformer? Is is the, the call on your life to continue to exist in religious institutions which are in some ways, anti-feminine, which is an odd position to be in because statistically, in these times, women are much more likely to keep their faith than men are. Statistically speaking, atheism, especially strong atheism, is a very masculine phenomenon. Are you the kind of person that wants to shake up the establishment and open the doors? If you are, that's fine. That's a noble calling. 
Or are you the kind of person who maybe is getting ready to find a community where you will be welcomed as you are in the fullness of your humanity to serve and follow God? There are a lot of churches in this country that fully accept women. It was one of the strongest calling points for me. It's when I walked into that church uh, the first time. And a woman gave the sermon as a dad of two daughters. One of the last things that happened at um, the Baptist church I was attending was my daughter and I were talking, and she was talking about what she wanted to do when she grew up. And I told her she could do anything she wanted to do. And she said, well, Dad, I could never be a pastor. And uh, that's when I knew it was time for us to find another place to worship is because I don't want my daughter growing up in a culture where she believes she's in some way inferior to or subordinate to someone else just because they're a man. And it sounds to me like you may be finding that same place. So whether you decide to stay and reform or go and find a place where you can grow, I wish you well. Well, there we have another episode of Ask Science Mike, and uh, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Let's talk about some important things. One, for the next two episodes, uh, in addition to this one, this is 21, so 22 and 23, there will not be a patron poll on Patreon. I'll be picking the questions for those shows because my schedule these next two weeks is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, Uh, but it's actually exciting. Uh, Next week, the week that the Monday this show comes out will be my last week uh, full-time in my job, um, transitioning to a consulting role there because the work that I'm doing, the science mic thing, the liturgist thing, uh, there's more announcements coming on this front, but I'm taking it full-time. This is going to be my main gig. I'm going to go from recording this show at night, half asleep, to recording it during the day, spending more time working on the questions, uh, more times developing you know, format changes and, and special episodes, things like that. So for all of you who help make the show possible by giving financially, I just I'm begging you for two weeks of patience while I keep the show going, but don't do a lot of the little extras. Now what I'm gonna make up for on the other side of that is much more involvement on my Patreon page. So if you've been thinking about giving to the show, helping make it possible, there has never been a better time. You can go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the Patreon link. As little as a dollar a month really makes a difference for the show. Um, Some people give more, and there's different rewards for that. You can get access to the show early. Uh, You can pick the questions except for the next two weeks. (laughs) You can even guarantee your own question gets on the program. I really appreciate all of you who do that. Also, another reason I can't do polls is because uh, Belong is coming up in Atlanta. Now, if you've been thinking about going to Belong and didn't think you'd be able to get in, we have had a couple of people who, because of scheduling reasons, had to cancel their tickets. So we have a few seats available. If you go to theliturgist.com slash belong, June 15th and 16th in Atlanta, we're doing Belong, and we would love to see you. Michael Gunger's going to be there. Amita Brown is going to be there. Pastor Betsy, my pastor, is going to be there. Lainey Donahoe is going to be there. It's going to be an incredible event talking about how do we create a church culture where everyone 
belongs, including you. Also, uh, in July, I'm going to be at the Wild Goose Festival. The liturgists will be there as well. We're doing our Lost and Found liturgy. And I'm going to give a talk on the science of peacekeeping that I'm really looking forward to. And I have a ton of events coming up. So if you go to mikemccarg.com slash events or go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events, you can see things I've got going on, at least the ones that are publicly available. And there's more in the pipeline. So uh, keep an eye out there. Uh, we do need your questions to keep the show alive, so you can submit those on AskScienceMike.com. You can record a voice question, type in a text question. That's how the show happens. No questions, no show. <laughs> so uh, all of you guys that have keep those coming in, I really, really appreciate it. Of course, our show is produced by the wonderful Greg Nordine, who he does this as a ministry to people. Greg and I were talking, and it means so much to him to help facilitate these conversations because he loves that people who feel like no one thought like them or they felt alone suddenly feel like they found a community through the show. So I appreciate Greg and all his time. Haley Hyde helped me with the pre-production. I want to thank her for that as well. And of course, as always, Big Bear Jeb Bodiford for doing the uh, theme song and recording and all that stuff. Got links to all those guys as well as resources for every single question in the history of the show on AskScienceMike.com. It's a really exciting time. I'm on this threshold where I've gone from graduating high school and working and getting a paycheck every single day since to now taking a leap into the unknown and following this work that seems to mean so much to people. But it's terrifying, guys. It really is. But I love it. I love this program. I love talking to you all. I love meeting you at events. I love running into people who listen to the program. And I love hearing your experiences. So let's keep the party going. And I will see you next week.